If you have a Bible, and I sure hope you do, would you open up to the letter known as 2 John. John wrote a gospel that has 22 chapters, but he also wrote three epistles to the local church. 2 John, if you don't know where that is, you can start at the back of your Bible, Revelation, come the opposite direction, Jude, 3 John, 2 John. It's really short, so it's easy to miss. If you're using the Pew Bible in front of you, you can turn to page 1025 if that helps you follow along. It is my joy to be with you this morning on behalf of your elect sister, Bethany Baptist Church um, in Alberton. I hope you will come join us for a fellowship meal. It's one of the reasons why we did the preacher swap here, uh, maybe start a tradition of mingling our souls, sister churches in uh, Warren County. So I hope you will come immediately following this service, um, bring some food and some comfy clothes, come ready to play and possibly compete. This morning's sermon title is simply The Elect Lady. The Elect Lady. I'll be doing all of 2 John 1 through 13. Uh, I preached this in two weeks at my church previously, but I'm aware that Dallas preaches for over an hour, so I didn't, uh, I, I had to combine them to, to fulfill your all's needs and your hungry hearts for the Word of God. So if you have found Second John and you're willing and able, would you stand out of reverence for the reading of God's Word one more time? Second John, I'll be reading all verses 1 through 13. It should read this way. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Verse 12, though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. Thank you, and you may have your seat. The elect lady. It is likely that you have never heard a sermon from Second John or even knew it was here in the Bible. I hope in these brief 45 minutes or so that you will learn to appreciate this often neglected and forgotten epistle of John. It could be called a postcard epistle because all of its contents would have fit on one simple piece of paper, papyri. It's the second shortest book 
of the New Testament, of the Bible. And you can probably guess the only one that's smaller than it, only by four words. This could have been 3 John instead of 2 John, but they're ordered in the way they are because 3 John has four less words. But the theme this morning from 2 John is the elect lady, written from John the Apostle. John the beloved of Jesus, a disciple. John also who calls himself an elder, a pastor of a local church, writing here corresponding to a house church likely in Gaius's home. I get that from 3 John. I want to divide the text this way this morning. Just four main things going on here. First is the lady is loved in truth. Second, the lady is commanded to love. And then we'll see a shift halfway through to warnings. The lady must watch out for deceivers. And then finally, you probably saw it as we were reading along, the lady must not welcome these deceivers. So verses 1 through 3, I want to encourage you, if you are in Christ this morning, whether you are a member at Bethany Baptist Church or Capitol Hill Baptist Church, or Ashland Avenue Baptist Church, or Burton Warrior Baptist Church, and you are in Christ, you are the elect lady. You are the lady who is dearly loved because you are in Christ. Dearly loved. Do you hear this pastoral heart in John? The love that he emphatically says he has for them. Verse 1, the elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth. The elect lady. Did you know that the church is often referred to as a lady? This goes all the way back to the Old Testament of regenerate Israel. It was referred to as a daughter, as a bride of Yahweh, His own chosen people. The church is feminine in the Greek language in the New Testament. Ekklesia. The lady, she is chosen. If you are in Christ, you are a part of that bride. You are elect. You are chosen from before the foundation of the world to be placed in the beloved Son. You are deeply loved. You are chosen among other brides that God could have but He did not set His affection so on them. I think of my own wife, my personal elect lady. I chose her from among many other candidates. But I have given all of my affection, all of my worldly goods to her. And tomorrow night we will go celebrate our 14th year anniversary. You are the bride of Christ. You are a people of His own began before you began. The elect lady, you've heard of Paul's epistle when he speaks to those who are in Christ. Those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he will and he is glorifying. He has a people for his own possession. Think about that. Is there any higher description of a people? Is there any greater label that you could have than the bride of 
Christ, chosen by God. Isn't that precious? Isn't that amazing? You are she. Of course, he is writing to an elect lady, and he writes in verse 13, from another sister lady, all of the same bride, local churches making up the greater universal church. You see the same word there in verse 13, the children of your elect, that is chosen sister, greet you. If you are in Christ, you are that, both of the universal church and of these independent congregations known as ecclesias, local churches. Let me just say something about this as we also think about the bride of Christ. The bride here at Burton, and you'll get to visit with the bride at Bethany. I had two sisters in my biological family, Brooke and Morgan. I always wanted brothers. I didn't want sisters. I wanted brothers to wrestle with. And I didn't want sisters like these sisters. I've grown to love them. God has saved both of them. But the family of God is the same way. We don't get to choose. You don't get to choose who your brothers and sisters are in Christ, in the universal church, or even in the local church. Perhaps you wish you had a brother in this church more like that, or a little sister less like that. I don't like that personality that they have, or some of their idiosyncrasies. But it's not your church. It's not your bride. It is his bride. It is his church. And God is so chosen and created the family uniquely here at Bethany and at Burton and all across the globe for your good. So love your sisters here. Love your brothers. Sometimes we wish we could pick who would come to our church and maybe who wouldn't come if we're honest with ourselves, but it is no different than our biological families. It's not our own choosing. It was God's and he is a good father. He is a good husband. So embrace And love all those who are here in the truth, those who are yet to be born again according to the truth of the gospel. So this love here that he has, I love the lady elect, I think of the before the foundation of the world. But then you have this word in verse two forever, verse two, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. This truth is the truth of God's love shed abroad in our hearts, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And to those whom are elect chosen from the foundation of the world, they have this promise that this love will abide how long? Forever. That's encouraging too, isn't it? Forever. Those whom He foreknew, He predestined, He called, He justified, He glorified. None whom the Father gives to the Son shall be lost. If you are in Christ, you cannot be lost or let go. You are his forever. Is there any love like this that we know of? There's not. There's not other than our God and our Savior. But this is the love that will be with us and will abide with us forever if we are in Christ. Have you thought about his love abiding with you forever? Perhaps you're reflecting on your week and how you performed. You know, Lucas, as you talked about loving the people in this church, I have not really loved them like I should, and I immediately thought of people that I have offended me and make me angry. I haven't loved them as I should. Or I know I should be abiding in the Word. I didn't read my Bible as much as I should this week. I found myself loving the world more than Christ at times, and I'm ashamed, and I'm embarrassed to say that I am His bride. Let me tell you something what you have done this week or what you will do does not change God's love for you because he 
did not love you because of what you did from the beginning. He loved you from before the beginning. He loves you in Christ, in His perfect work, not your own. And so your performance does not change His love abiding in and upon you forever. Mm, that's refreshing. You have failed in many ways this week, Christian, I am sure. But His love is said to abide with the saints forever. The lady is loved. The lady is loved in truth. And then we see this again, another example of this love and truth in verse 3. This is either a greeting or a promise. Most all epistles have this in there. I think it's both. I think it's a promise and it's also a greeting. I'll show you that later on in our sermon. But look at this. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father, Son, in truth and love. This helps us understand how all these things are possible that I just said. That if you're in Christ, you are loved from the beginning. Chosen, distinct from other peoples. And loved forever. How is it possible if it's not because of the good I did or the good I would do? And it remains despite my failures that persist and make me feel unworthy to be called His chosen bride? This is why. A love that is from the beginning, a love that will go on forever, a love that comes at a great cost. Think about these words, grace, mercy, and peace that are with the saints. How do these come about? Well, I want you to see they come about from two entities. I think the Holy Spirit is implied here, but from God the Father and from Jesus Christ. This love and truth, this gospel purchase comes from both. Sometimes we accidentally separate the two, don't we? We believe in one God, three persons here, two persons of the Trinity distinctly named. But it's not as though the Father is full of wrath and the Son is full of love. Or the Father is truth and the Son is love. No. This plan of redemption to make a bride comes fully from the Godhead. Love and truth from the Father and from the Son. I want you to think about that as you view your God, as you understand the complexities of the Trinity. Grace, mercy, and peace. Where does this come from? It comes from God the Father and Jesus Christ. But what is it here that is promised? Grace, mercy, and peace. Grace, that being unmerited favor. The kindness of God that you don't deserve. That's what grace is. You don't deserve it. Mercy is compassion. Forgiveness. And then peace. That's a word we're maybe more familiar with. This is the opposite of enmity or war or hostility. So the bride of Christ has this grace, unmerited favor, mercy, forgiveness of sins, and peace from God the Father and Lord Jesus Christ. How is that possible? How is it that I can say you are elect, you are beloved, forever his doing his doing in the gospel the kindness of God would be given to us grace the mercy and the forgiveness of a just God who does not just love and love but loves in truth did you see that here our culture really wants to emphasize love 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 and then just kind of leave out truth and say look everybody just gonna have compassion and mercy no it comes at a great purchase price love and truth together 
We were enemies of God because of our own works, our own doing, our own choosing. But God the Father sent God the Son. Planned from the foundation of the world, Son willingly went and lived the perfect life. That week you wish you had, He lived that week. That perfect moment you wish He had, every second while He was on this planet was blameless. Fulfilling the commandments. Keeping the covenant. But then He went to a sinner's cross. The place where war between God and man should be displayed. Where criminals suffer and die. And the perfect Son of God hung there on that tree. Satisfying the justice of God. Offering the imputation of His righteousness to a people who would merely look to Him and receive this grace, this mercy, this peace. Do you see that? This pastor, John, is overflowing with love. And the grounds and the cause of it is not his own love for the people, though he loves them, but the love of the Father to the Son to the Bride. From Gaius' house and to wherever it is that John is writing this letter. This is how you are loved. This is how I can say such grandiose things about the elect lady and the love of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now, before I go on, a couple of applications here. Notice how love is emphasized here, but three times he reiterates not just love, but love in truth. Verse one, I love in truth. Not also I only, but those who know the truth. And then verse 3, in truth and love. Friends, I don't know who is with Christ this morning and who is outside of Him. In love with the world and probably loved by school friends, loved by those who do not love Jesus, and you feel loved by them. Or maybe you're in, the, in Christ and you're thinking about walking away from Him because there's a group of people out here who you feel like can love you better. This is God's bride here the love is distinct. I will promise you this, that in Christ, love is always in truth. They may say they love you, but they can't love you in truth like this. Think about Pride Month. There's a lot of love being trumpeted there. But it's not love in truth. This is a people of love and truth. And that, my friends, is true love. Love of Christ. Those who will love you and warn you about your sin. Those who will encourage you to walk in Christ. To walk and abide in His teachings. This place, I trust, is a place of truth and love. Now one pastoral warning before we move on from this first section. Is you can fall into two extremes here in this truth and love thing. You can really, really, really be the kind of person that emphasizes love, 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 love. And then there's no meat to it. There's no doctrine. There's no fixed morality and you'll be loving without truth that is a dangerous extreme and churches can fall into that but if you're like bethany baptist church our tendency as reformed brothers if you are is to be true 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 truth we're hard on doctrine true 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 truth but not coming about it in love do you see that Maybe observe and note your extreme tendency. And see here in the text, the pastor wants truth and love. 
See how the word of God tethers us and puts us in the right place. So the lady is love. The second, verses 4 through 6, I want you to see that the lady is commanded to love. So there John spoke of his love for them, which comes from the other churches, but comes ultimately from the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Now he's going to write a command He's beginning to get to the meat of his letter, something he wants them to do, and it is the command to love. So we saw the word truth there at least three times in the first section. The lady is loved in truth. Now I want you to see the word command here three times. Verse 4, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking the truth just as we were commanded by the Father. Verse 5, and now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I'm writing you a new commandment, but the one we have from the beginning. That we love one another. So that's our main command. Love one another. And then verse 6. And this is the love that we walk according to this, His commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning. So we should walk in it. So first he just says, I love you. It's an indicative. But here we kind of get an implied imperative. Elect lady who is dearly loved. Here's what John would say to you. Love one another. And I mean that in a command. It's a command to love one another. Before I dive deeply into that, I think this is my favorite thing that I got out of studying 2 John for the last two or three weeks. Look at verse 4, and it'll serve as a contrast between verse 1. I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. So he rejoices here. In verse 1, he's loving. Okay, so let's just contrast those. Love, love, and then rejoice. You can be happy about somebody or unhappy about them, but you may continue loving them. And then in verse 1, the, the love here is for the whole church. Love, he's, he's loving, he's writing about his love for the whole church. But then in verse 4, he's only rejoicing over some of them. Did you see that? Did you see the contrast there? I love all, I rejoice some. Now, isn't that the reality of parenting, even if you have children? I love all my children, I do, and nothing can change that. Because I love them before they were born. And I will love them forever, no matter what they do, but I rejoice over certain ones more often than others. This might be Clara's week, Daddy's happy, but not Luke's week. Or the next week might be, this is Luke's week, I'm really rejoicing in Clara's behavior, or Luke's behavior and not Clara. You, you, you get this, right? We understand this. But what remains the same? Love for them. So this is interesting here, too. Can we not relate to that in the church of Jesus Christ? We ought to love all of the body of Christ unconditionally. But the reality is sometimes we're more happy about a brother or sister based on how they're walking in the truth or not. How they're obeying this command. So there's a careful distinction I can relate to. But this ought to affect the way we pray for one another or the way we fellowship this afternoon. So here's how I think about when I'm praying pastorally, part of my self-imposed job task is to pray through our church directory and I can go through the B's and we have a lot of B's at our church for some reason and the C's and the D's and I can see someone's face and I can go oh I mean they're really being a difficult church member and I see all these things they're not doing that I wish they could do and that's the reality right you, you know it. you're thinking about somebody in the room right now I bet that's how Dallas prays for them but we ought to look at them whether we can rejoice or not right now, the love ought to be the same. I ought to see the B's and the C's and the D's and the P's in the church directory and say, love from the foundation of the world. Love forever. God's love for them has not changed one bit. I ought to love them the same as God does. Doesn't mean you always rejoice over them. Love. 
Love in this way. All right, real quickly, on four through six, the commands, the commands of love. This is the command. The first thing we see in verses four and five is that this command is nothing new. It's a command, he says in verse four, that you were commanded by the Father. He says, I'm not writing a new commandment, but one we have had from the beginning that we love one another. Friends, is this not true? I love our Old Testament reading. In our New Testament reading, the command for God's people to love one another is not something new that John came up with. From the beginning, 1 John writes about this, about Cain and Abel's relationship, that they were to love one another, but he did not. And he should have, but he did not because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. The Levitical Code gave command after command to love your neighbor, to reason with him frankly, to not hate him. And then in John 15, Jesus says what? Love one another as I have loved you. So you have the command coming from the Father in the Old Testament, and then the command reiterated or explained even more when Jesus is on earth. So we must understand this is nothing new. This has always been the command from the Father, from the Son. Nothing new but an old commandment. It's also important that you hear this from 1 Thessalonians. It's not just here are Christians and here's the command you're supposed to do that. I also think he's implying what Paul is saying. This command is written on the Christian's heart. You're not just commanded. You are taught by the Father and the Son and the Spirit. If you are in Christ, you are taught. Have you been to this school? Do you know this teaching of love? Listen to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul writes to his church at Thessalonica, Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. One of the evidences that you are the elect lady, that you are loved in God, is that He is already teaching you and you are taught. So if you're hearing these commands to love and you're like, that's burdensome, I don't do that, it's really hard... Are you taught by God? You see, my job is already done. I don't have to teach you. That's what Paul is saying. You're taught. You heard of a man named Forrest? I may not be a very smart man, but I know what love is. What I'm saying here is that the most immature young Christian to the most mentally handicapped Christian would understand this. This is the basics of Christianity. This is the fulfillment of the law is that Christians would love one another. The most immature Christian, if one were to be born again today, they would be taught by God to love one another. Do you see that? From the Father, from the Son, from the beginning. Are you taught by God? Has His love come to you and now going through you to love one another. But notice what the pastor John, the elder, does here in verse 5. There's something insightful for us as we think about commands, specifically the command to love as pastors, as leaders, as teachers, as parents. He says in verse 5, I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we had from the beginning, that we love one another. So that's a long way of saying, church, I command you, love one another. But there's something insightful for us as pastors, as leaders, as teachers. 
what comes from this pulpit, what we require for church membership, what we require from one another, should never be something new. John has no authority to put commands on the church that he did not receive from God in his word, from God himself. Do you see that? I politely asked our church a couple weeks ago, could I please have a sabbatical this summer? That's not a command. They don't have to do that. It would be nice. But I should command what God commands. If you hear something new coming from this pulpit that's not clearly outlined in Scripture, you should think, that's what the false teachers do. They add to the commands or they take away from the commands. But John says, I command what the Father commands. What I receive from the Son, I give to you. Parents, is this how you parent? Sunday school teachers, friends in discipleship, when you meet for a small group, what commands and burdens are you laying on one another? What are you exhorting one another to do? Do not go beyond Scripture. Don't bind people's conscience with this. But when it comes to love, stand firmly. Do you see that? Where the Scriptures command, we command. And this is the command from the beginning, that you love one another. See, I have some authority here this morning. I can at least say that. You didn't have to stand. You didn't have to when I said, will you stand for the reading of God's Word? You could have said, it's not in the Bible. I'm going to sit down. That's why I said, if you're willing and able. But I have authority, apostolic, handed down authority to say, you must love one another, Christians at Burton Memorial Baptist Church. You must gather with the saints when they gather the Lord's Day. You must attend to the apostolic preaching. You must not just love one another in word and talk, but in deed and in truth. You must stir up one another to love and to good works. You must love one another. He's merely continuing this command, and rightfully so. Lastly, in this first half here, verse 6, I want you to see the command itself is lovely. So the elect lady is loved in truth and the lady is commanded to love. What we have here in the Greek is called a tautology. T-A-U-T-O-L-O-G-Y. Tautology. That means it is what it is. Verse 6, and this is love that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment, just as you've heard from the beginning, so you should walk in it. Basically, the commandment is the commandment. Or love is love. Commandment is love. What is that? Love is the commandment. Do you catch that? It is what it is. Or to summarize even more succinctly, the commandment itself is lovely. It's a beautiful thing. That's why John writes in 1 John that if you're in Christ and you've received this love and you are the elect lady who has received the love, it's not burdensome to love one another. Don't you want to do that? When you hear a good sermon on verses 1 through 3, don't you all of a sudden see your brother and sister at this church differently? I want to love them. Yes, I can see some of her blemishes, but I see her as God sees her, and I see her as worthy of His blood shed. And the work that He began in her, He will complete. And so the commandments are not burdensome. The commandment is love. Love is the commandment. Think about if we viewed the Ten Commandments that way, or even just the second half of those commandments. Do not lie to your brother or sister at Burton. Why would you lie to her? She's your sister. She's your brother in Christ. You've got nothing to hide. You don't have to manipulate. Christ died for her. 
Do not steal. Why would you steal from your own family? Like We think those are the most crazy, corrupt families in this world that would steal from their own kin. You stole from my kin, who was fixing to betray us. Another movie reference I'll tell you about later. If you've seen O Brother, Art Thou? You don't steal from family, right? What I have is hers, and what she has is mine. I want her good. In fact, I would give rather than steal for my brother or sister in Christ. You see, when you understand the commandment is love, and you understand who these commandments are, first and foremost, here in this text, driven towards, or thinking about the local church, it's not burdensome. What about to not commit adultery, or to not covet your wife's oxen or spouse? If you love them and you understand how God and Christ has loved them, then all of a sudden it makes it so much easier. It's not, it's not impossible that we would ever sin or struggle with it, but when we have that perspective that she is the elect lady, she is not just some girl, she is not just some, he's not just some boy, but my elect brother, the elect bride whom Christ laid down his life for, then it changes the perspective. All of a sudden the commandments themselves become lovely. They become an avenue by which God manifests His love to a brother or sister by me not stealing, by me not lying, by me not coveting, by me honoring my father and mother. God is glorified and His love is manifest at Burton Memorial Baptist Church. The lady is loved in truth. The lady is commanded to love. Now verses 7 through the end. Did you catch the shift here? This first half was more so lovey-dovey. Now he's got to bring out the pastoral warnings shifted from the church the elect lady and in her love for one another and now it's going in protection mode this is what a good pastor must do love does not contradict this this shift is not from love to hatred it is still done in love in fact it's loving to protect the bride one way the elders will protect this bride is to warn you from deceivers and to guard this pulpit and to guard what book studies you read to what books are out on that table. This is one way that the lady receives and manifests this love. So, verses 7 through 9, the lady must watch out for false teaching or deceivers. Verse 7, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the antichrist. Listen, that word means a lot. Now, if you're like me, I grew up reading the Left Behind series, and we were put on watch for who's the Antichrist going to be. And I was told in the book, it was a fictional novel, his name was going to be Nikolai Carpathia, and he was going to have all this swooning power of miracles to lead astray and rise up as a beast to rule the earth. On the lookout for Nikolai Carpathia. I was reading these in FCA in my school. I was looking which which one of the students is going to be him. Watch the news. Which one of them is going to be him? Who's the Antichrist? Now he does use the definite here, Antichrist. But I think if you take it in context, he's not saying to look out for that one Antichrist. Although there is one that there will be someday, if you interpret the Bible that way. Listen to Second Thessalonians. I'm going to read what he's not, or at least not the one we're supposed to be looking for this morning. 2 Thessalonians says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together Him, we ask you, brothers, do not be quickly shaken in mind or alarm, either by spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, 
For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. This is going to be a bad dude. But I don't think that's who he's warning us to watch out for. One reason is because in verse 7 it says many deceivers Plural. I think he means those who come like the Antichrist. In 1 John, he warns the congregation there of Antichrist. Saying that many have gone out from us. The spirit of the Antichrist. Those who were with us and now are outside of us. He says, beloved, test the spirits. Do not believe every spirit. For many Antichrists. Preach a different gospel. So this is where we need to watch. Not for some guy named Nikolai Carpathia. With special powers. And this is a literal person who will come. But the deceivers that may come into our life in smaller proportions. Over the radio, if any of you still listen to the radio. Or your podcast. On the phone. Lifeway material. Books that are published. People that show up in a Sunday school class, pastors that begin to speak a little differently than they used to speak and emphasize things they didn't used to emphasize. These are the many deceivers. So he's saying, in just a minute, watch out for deceivers or even acknowledge that there are many deceivers. You see, this is one of the two temptations that Satan, the great deceiver, the leader of the Antichrist, would want us to believe. Two ditches here. One is that there are no deceivers. Just believe everybody. That's the loving thing to do. If someone says they're a Christian, just believe them. If they have a Bible and they preach during time, just believe them that they mean good for you. So that we never look for deceivers and we're just hoodwinked again and again and again. That's a danger that we can fall into. Don't fall into that danger. There are deceivers. Do not be surprised be on the lookout. But there's another ditch. And again, I think in my Reformed brothers and sisters, this is the one we fall into. So first ditch, there are no deceivers. Just believe our best of everybody. And then what's the other one? You get, you get where I'm going, right? Everyone's out to deceive me. Everyone on Twitter is a heretic, right? Everyone that's ever left Burton Memorial is an antichrist. Do you see the danger there? It's not. It's not. Because look at verse 7. The ones whom he's calling a deceiver, they have a specific doctrine that they're promoting. They do not confess the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in the flesh. I told our church, there are going to be people who come to Bethany Baptist Church and join for a while and just find out they just don't fit there well. Their gifts don't fit well. Or maybe they're driving too far and they're going to hopefully join another elect sister. We shouldn't look at them and say, they left because they're the Antichrist. If they don't stay in our church, they must be a deceiver. People are going to come and go for good reasons. These people he's called deceivers did not confess the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see that? So if someone leaves this church because they don't like guitar playing, they'd rather have an organ, you don't say, Antichrist. No, 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 these people didn't confess the coming of Jesus Christ. Now, if someone says that, you can say, be an Antichrist. Do you see that? So there's two extremes here. There's no deceivers to every single person who puts a book out is trying to deceive me. Watch yourselves. Know this temptation. That leads perfectly into verse 8. Look at what he says. 
Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Blipite. This is the same word Jesus uses when he's preaching about the coming of the end of the ages in Mark. He says, watch out lest you be led astray. So this is good for us. Not just be watching always out there and critiquing everything that's going on out there or watching other people in the room and thinking about how they're going astray. Where is it that we should be watching first and foremost? Watch yourselves. See, the deceivers have already gone. The Antichrist in verse 7. But what he's worried about in verse 8 is the saints who are still there. He's worried about you as individuals. Watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So don't spend all your time looking for deceivers out there. Look at how you may be being deceived. You may be going beyond the teaching of Christ. Where you may be forsaking your first love. Or your love growing cold. Well, we would do well to do that, to watch over our own souls diligently. And I would say first and foremost, what does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 6? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I think Jesus is saying something similar here. Watch yourselves. Where are you giving into deception? Where are you straying from your pure affections for Christ, the sufficiency of His Word, and your hope in the Gospel? Watch yourselves. Now, there is a, a stern pastoral warning here. Now, I preached the first ten minutes of my sermon about how you are elect from the foundation of the world and you will have His love forever. But I want you to see the tension here. He says... To watch yourself so you not lose what we have worked for. Now, I believe that you cannot lose your salvation and that God's love for His true people will not ever cease. But it is the very commands, the imperatives of Scripture empowered by the Holy Spirit that keep you in the love of Christ. Do you see that? If you just say, oh, once saved, always saved. I don't have to watch myself or watch what I watch on TV. I'll make it safely to the end. No, 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 no. Because the command from your God is to watch over yourselves, to persevere in the faith, to continue abiding in Christ. That is the magnet. And you are the metal shavings at which God draws His people continually to Himself. So see how the imperative does not contradict the indicatives that I pointed out in the first section of this morning's sermon. Watch yourselves. Are you diligently watching yourselves? Are you careful what goes into your ears? There are people at Bethany Baptist Church who have fallen away, I believe because they did not watch themselves. But they became passive. Put it on cruise control. You must persevere in love. You must persevere in abiding in Christ. So the lady must watch out for false teaching. We get a little bit more idea of what this false teaching is. Maybe a summary above was that they did not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in verse 7. But here we see what it is that they're doing. Verse 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. So negative. What did they do? They had the teaching of Christ. Perhaps even the gospel of John. But they've gone on ahead. They had this. So it was Jesus. But now they've added something else. Extra revelation. New things. So think about our Mormon friends. They say they take the gospel of Jesus, but then they got these extra revelations. They had this, now they've gone on beyond that. 
Okay, and so we ought to say that anyone who goes beyond the teaching of Christ does not have God. So I said, my Mormon friends, it's loving to tell them, do not have God. Let me tell you about how you can have the true God. How the gospel works. We reason with them, but we must be clear. Our Mormon friends, our Jehovah's Witness friends, our Muslim friends, if you go beyond, if you add or subtract anything from the pure teaching of Christ, you do not have God. Not God that you have. But these false teachers do not abide or remain, but they go on ahead. This is why this pulpit is, as far as I know, is emphasizing expository preaching. Because this is all we need. Here, if we preach topically, we preach from the text. This is what we need to go beyond, to hear Pastor Dallas's ideas, or to hear my new found commands, is to go on beyond the teachings of Christ and not have God, is to begin to apostatize or to take away from what we thought we had. Now, there is an implication here. If they do not abide in the teaching of Christ, but go on, and then the second sentence, whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Son, what is the implication here? The teaching of Christ has come, and it is complete. Do you see that? The implication is that we have all of Christ's teachings here. Complete. Canon. Being solidified, even as John writes, maybe one of the last letters of the Bible, but we have it, and you have it, and you have it in your hands, and you can, you can say, is this a teaching of Christ, or is this a teaching of Dallas? Is this a teaching of Christ, or is this a teaching of Pastor Lucas? You can have it, and you have this litmus test. You have the true dollar bills. You can inspect, counterfeit, abide in the teaching of Christ. So he gives the negative. That's what they do, or what we should not do, but there's also a positive here. The second sentence in verse 9 Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and Son. So this is a thing I want to tell you. Abide in this book. Abide in this book. And that don't just mean on Sunday mornings and nod your heads and say, I like it when Dallas preaches the Bible. You, you abide in the Word. How would you ever know if he's apostatizing? Unless you, like the Bereans, search the Word. Unless you meditate on it and thrive upon it all week. How silly would it be if you had a house plant and you put it in the dirt in the water on Sundays and then took it back out and just put it on the dash of your car and drove around? Well, I put it in the, in the pot and I give it water and I give it nutrients once a week. No. Abide in the teachings of Christ. Plant your life personally and corporately in the Word of Christ. All 66 books, which I failed to mention. The Word of Christ is that the subjective or the genitive in the Greek, meaning is it the words that Christ spoke or the words about Christ? Do you see that? You know, my answer is yes, both. <laughs> all of the words are about Christ and Christ's words. Yes, all of that. All 66 books. Abide in it. You abide in it. You must. Why are you not loving God's word when you have such free access to it? Abide in it this week forever. Abide in the word. Now, I know our church, we, we love the Bible like you guys do, but there's a fascination with blogs, ones that I would recommend most often. Nine Mark's blog, Tim Challey's blog, and people talking about reading them and these articles. That's good. But that's not what we need to abide in first and foremost. Get in the Word first. Or to state it another way, I don't want to know if you've read 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John all week. You know, John Calvin, John MacArthur, and John Piper. I want to know this book. 
You're rooted and grounded in this. This is the positive that guards them against the negative of the false teachers. If you are not abiding in God's word, you watch out yourselves so you do not lose what we have worked for. Last section here. So review, we had the lady is loved in truth. The lady is commanded to love. We saw the shift of the warnings. The lady must watch out for deceivers. Now another group of commands here. The lady must not welcome deceivers. Verse 10. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting. For whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So he is taught and he has warned, but this pastor knows, like we do, that as soon as you turn on the radio Monday morning on the way to work, you're going to hear teaching. You're going to hear propaganda. These house church members that John was writing to, they were going to hear a knock on the door. Hey, uh, we're witnesses of Jehovah, and we'd like to share with you our teaching. And he says, not only are there deceivers that you must watch out for, you must not welcome them. Because whoever welcomes them takes part in their evil deeds. Now, we can get a little sideways on this if we don't understand the context. It doesn't mean that you don't ever say hi to a lost person or you never let a lost person into your house. You know why? Because all five of my children would sleep outside. <laughs> God is yet to regenerate them. That's not what he's saying. Don't ever welcome a lost person in your house or don't ever give a greeting to a lost person. Remember the context of the first century, okay? There was not safe hospitality in hotels. So when traveling evangelists came to share their message, you would show them hospitality. You would put them up in your home like Gaius does in 3 John. He showed faithful love to the missionaries that John had sent. So to welcome them into, their, into your home, into your house church, was to give them a platform and to encourage them in their ministry. So these are likely false teachers, not just false believers. Do you see the distinction there? I'll use the Jehovah's Witness illustration again. Jehovah's Witnesses walk on my door. I'm going to say, come on in. Sit down. I'm going to let them give their 15-minute spill. I might even give them a little food. And then I'm going to give them my 15-minute spill. And I'm going to lovingly tell them how they do not have the true God of the Bible. And their Jesus will not save them. And I will beg them to repent and to continue the conversation. I will welcome them to my home. I will show hospitality to them. But you know what I won't do? I won't say, why don't you guys stick around for family worship? You know, we read the Bible with our children and indoctrinate them. And why don't you guys lead? No, 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 no. I'm leading in my home in the same way. I meet a Muslim friend. I'm evangelizing him at Starbucks. And I tell him about my church. I'm going to say, come to Bethany Baptist Church. Come and listen. He says, well, can I get up and give my interpretation? Can I? No, 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 no. Come and listen. This is God's house. You're not welcome to speak in authority here. Come and listen. Come in here. I think that's the distinction he's making on do not welcome them into your home. Likely a house church, likely teachers that were wanting to have authority and propagate their message. So those were to not be welcomed and were to not be greeted. So that word welcome and greet, it's a double command that we're taking here. In verse 10, do not give him any greeting for whoever greets him takes part in his works. That might also confuse us too on the house church welcoming thing. Do you remember how powerful, you've read the Bible, right? You abide in the Word of God. How powerful and meaningful greetings are in the Bible. 
It's more than just like, what's up? Amen. Pull it, bro. It's more than that, right? There's power in the greetings. 1 Corinthians 16, listen to the power of greetings that Paul writes to the church at Corinth. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's power in these greetings. It's more than what's up, hey, bro. It's calling someone a brother in Christ, a sister in Christ. It's saying Godspeed. God bless. You can't say that to false teachers. Or they'll continue walking in their false gospel and you will condone them going to hell. So you don't give them this Christian blessing, this greeting. Case in point, look at verse 3. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father, Son, and truth and love. Don't say that to your Mormon friend. Don't say that to the unrepentant so-called Christian that gives no evidence of being in the truth. Don't say that. Don't, don't, don't tell them it's all okay. They're not in Christ. They don't have grace, mercy, and peace yet until they repent and trust in the true gospel, until they turn from their sins and treasure Christ. You see that greetings are powerful. That's why he gave this greeting to them, the church here meeting in Gaius' home. But he's saying, don't greet them like that. Friends, that means those false teachers, even if they're in a Baptist church, don't let them preach your wedding. Don't ask them to preach your loved one's funeral. Don't call them brother. Or you take part in their evil deeds. You continue to promote that. And your weaker brothers and sisters will be led astray. And you will be culpable for that. Verse 11, whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. The Greek here, koinea, you are in community with them. You are actually help give them a platform. But let's end with this. Sometimes, just like with the beginning greetings and the end greetings or the salutations here at the end, we, we gloss over and we just say, oh, John's just saying I love you goodbye. But knowing what we just learned about those false teachers who come and the greetings that they are not to receive or be welcome, this takes, this takes, more, it takes more of our attention. It, it, it's insightful. Look at verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk to you face to face so that our joy may be complete. The children of your elect sister greet you. You see, that's the positive of the negative that they are not supposed to do. When a false teacher comes in who's moved beyond the teachings of Christ, who does not love, don't welcome them and don't greet them. But what is the elect lady to do when John finally gets to come visit them? They're to welcome him in. They're to heed his teaching. And why? Because he's not teaching anything new. He's teaching the word of Christ. He's the real deal. They're to promote his ministry. They're to bandage his wounds. They're to listen and pray with him. They're to invite, I mean, I would invite John. John, you want to come to my house? Yes, please lead family worship. Maybe my children will pay attention for one time. A knock is coming at the door. They are not only to negatively reject the false teacher, but they are positively welcome and greet the true sisters. Whether it be at a fellowship meal on the side of a hill in Alberton this afternoon, they are to invite, they are to love, they are to listen, they are to find this mutual respect and family that comes from being in Christ. You should support ministers like this way. 
Support your pastor, Dallas. Give him time to study. Bless him well. When he labors in the word, listen. Not for his 15 minutes spill, so they can give your 15 minutes spill and y'all can do it. Listen and receive it if it is the word of Christ. You promote good preaching. You promote good ministry. You promote the true gospel by those who you do welcome, talk face to face with, and greet in the name of Christ. But I want us to end thinking about this. This greeting, this welcoming. You guys have been welcoming to me and we will hope to welcome you this afternoon at Bethany Baptist Church. In the name of Christ. But are you welcomed before God? You come to stand before Him in judgment. Or if you were right now, what kind of greeting do you come bringing? What kind of teaching? What kind of hope? How is it that God could receive you? Friends, you will be rejected. You will be shut out. You will not be greeted if you come with anything other than Christ. And in Christ, you who were once enemies are now friends. In Christ, you who were once hated and pushed away are welcomed in the Beloved. You are the apple of His eye. You are forever His when you come in Christ. So my hope this morning is that you be found in Christ, delighting in Him, abiding in Him, finding His commandments to love, not burdensome, but supernaturally powered by the love that you have. Received. I hope you'll be thinking about that as you are welcomed according to the leadership here to the Lord's Supper. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have preserved, caused us to be able to abide in it. Sanctify your bride, my elect sister at Burton this morning. The greater understanding of your love for her a greater desire to love one another here and more carefulness to guard their ears and their heart from deceivers in our midst or outside. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.